The summer was coming to an end. The Jewish year was nearly over. On the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the last day of that accursed year, the whole camp was electric with the tension which was in all our hearts. In spite of everything, this day was different from any other. The last day of the year, the word last rang very strangely. What if it were indeed the last day? They gave us our evening meal, a very thick soup, but no one touched it. We wanted to wait until after prayers. At the place of assembly, surrounded by the electrified barbed wire, thousands of silent Jews gathered, their faces stricken. Night was falling. Other prisoners continued to crowd in from every block, able suddenly to conquer time and space and submit both to their will. What are you, my God? I thought angrily. Compared to this afflicted crowd proclaiming to you their faith, their anger, their revolt, what does your greatness mean, Lord of the universe, in the face of all this weakness, this decomposition, and this decay? Why do you still trouble their sick minds, their crippled bodies? Ten thousand men had come to attend the solemn service, heads of the blocks, capos, functionaries of death. Bless the Eternal. The voice of the officiant had just made itself heard. I thought at first it was the wind. Blessed be the name of the Eternal. Thousands of voices repeated the benediction. Thousands of men prostrated themselves like trees before a tempest. Blessed be the name of the Eternal. Why, but why should I bless him? In every fiber I rebelled. Because he had had thousands of children burned in his pits, because he kept six crematories working night and day on Sundays and feast days, because in his great might he had created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many factories of death? How could I say to him, Blessed art thou, eternal master of the universe, who chose us from among the races to be tortured day and night, to see our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end in the crematory, Praised be thy holy name, thou who hast chosen us to be butchered on thine altar. I heard the voice of the officiant rising up, powerful, yet at the same time broken, amid the tears, sobs, the sighs of the whole congregation. All the earth and the universe are God's. He kept stopping every moment as though he did not have the strength to find the meaning beneath the words. The melody choked in his throat. And I, mystic that I had been, I thought, yes, man is very strong, greater than God. When you were deceived by Adam and Eve, you drove them out of paradise. When Noah's generation displeased you, you brought down the flood. When Sodom no longer found favor in your eyes, you made the sky rain down fire and sulfur. But these men here, whom you have betrayed, 
whom you have allowed to be tortured, butchered, gassed, burned, what do they do? They pray before you. They praise your name. All creation bears witness to the greatness of God. Once, New Year's Day had dominated my life. I knew that my sins grieved the Eternal. I implored His forgiveness. Once, I had believed profoundly that upon one solitary deed of mine, one solitary prayer, depended the salvation of the world. This day, I had ceased to plead. I was no longer capable of lamentation. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser, God the accused. My eyes were open, and I was alone, terribly alone, in a world without God and without man, without love or mercy. I had ceased to be anything but ashes, yet I felt myself to be stronger than the Almighty to whom my life had been tied for so long. I stood amid that praying congregation, observing it like a stranger. The service ended with a Kaddish. Everyone recited the Kaddish over his parents, over his children, over his brothers, and over himself. We stayed for a long time at the assembly place. No one dared to drag himself away from this mirage. Then it was time to go to bed, and slowly the prisoners made their way over to their blocks. I heard people wishing one another a happy new year. I ran off to look for my father, and at the same time I was afraid of having to wish him a happy new year when I no longer believed in it. He was standing near the wall, bowed down, his shoulders sagging as though beneath a heavy burden. I went up to him, took his hand, and kissed it. A tear fell upon it. Whose was that tear? Mine? His? I said nothing, nor did he. We had never understood one another so clearly. The sound of the bell jolted us back to reality. We must go to bed. We came back from far away. I raised my eyes to look at my father's face leaning over mine to try to discover a smile or something resembling one upon the aged, dried-up countenance. Nothing not the shadow of an expression, beaten. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Should we fast? The question was hotly debated. To fast would mean a surer, swifter death. We fasted here the whole year round. The whole year was Yom Kippur. But others said that we should fast simply because it was dangerous to do so. We should show God that even here, in this enclosed hell, we were capable of singing his praises. I did not fast, mainly to please my father, who had forbidden me to do so. But further, there was no longer any reason why I should fast. I no longer accepted God's silence. As I swallowed my bowl of soup, I saw in the gesture an act of rebellion and protest against him and I nibbled my crust of bread. 
in the depths of my heart, I felt a great void. The SS gave us a fine New Year's gift. We had just come back from work. As soon as we had passed through the door of the camp, we sensed something different in the air. Roll call did not take so long as usual. The evening soup was given out with great speed and swallowed down at once in anguish. I was no longer in the same block as my father. I had been transferred to another unit, the building one, where twelve hours a day I had to drag heavy blocks of stone about. The head of my new block was a German Jew, small of stature, with piercing eyes. He told us that evening that no one would be allowed to go out after the evening soup. And soon a terrible word was circulating. Selection. We knew what that meant. An SS man would examine us. Whenever he found a weak one, a Muselman, as we called them, he would write his number down, good for the crematory. After soup, we gathered together between the beds. The veteran said, You're lucky to have been brought here so late. Oh, this camp is paradise today compared to what it was like two years ago. Buna was a real hell then. There was no water, no blankets, less soup and bread. At night we slept almost naked and it was below 30 degrees. The corpses were collected in hundreds every day. The work was hard. Today, this is a little paradise. The capos had orders to kill a certain number of prisoners every day. And every week, selection. A merciless selection. Yes, you're lucky. Stop it! Be quiet! I begged. You can tell your stories tomorrow or on some other day. They burst out laughing. They were not veterans for nothing. Are you scared? <laughs> so were we scared. And there was plenty to be scared of in those days. The old men stayed in their corner, dumb, motionless, haunted. Some were praying. An hour's delay. In an hour, we should know the verdict. Death or a reprieve. And my father? Suddenly I remembered him. How would he pass the selection? He had aged so much. The head of our block had never been outside concentration camps since 1933. He had already been through all the slaughterhouses, all the factories of death. At about nine o'clock he took up his position in our midst. Achtung! There was instant silence. Listen carefully to what I am going to say. For the first time I heard his voice quiver. In a few moments, the selection will begin. You must get completely undressed. Then, one by one, you go before the SS doctors. I hope you will all succeed in getting through, but you must help your own chances. Before you go into the next room, move about in some way so that you give yourselves a little color. Don't walk slowly. Run. Run as if the devil were after you. Don't look at the SS. Run straight in front of you. He broke off for a moment, then added, And the essential thing, don't be afraid. Here was a piece of advice we should have liked very much to be able to follow. I got undressed leaving my clothes on the bed. There was no danger of anyone stealing them this evening. 
Tibby and Yossi, who had changed their unit at the same time as I had, came up to me and said, Let's keep together, we shall be stronger. Yossi was murmuring something between his teeth. He must have been praying. I had never realized that Yossi was a believer. I had even always thought the reverse. Tibby was silent, very pale. All the prisoners in the block stood naked between the beds. This must be how one stands at the last judgment. They're coming! There were three SS officers standing around the notorious Dr. Mengele who had received us at Birkenau. The head of the block, with an attempt at a smile, asked us, Ready? Yes, we were ready. So were the SS doctors. Dr. Mengele was holding a list in his hand, our numbers. He made a sign to the head of the block. We can begin? As if this were a game. The first to go by were the officials of the block. Stuben Elteste, Kapos, Foreman, all in perfect physical condition, of course. Then came the ordinary prisoner's turn. Dr. Mengele took stock of them from head to foot. Every now and then, he wrote a number down. One single thought filled my mind. Not to let my number be taken. Not to show my left arm. There were only Tibby and Yossi in front of me. They passed. I had time to notice that Mengele had not written their numbers down. Someone pushed me. It was my turn. I ran without looking back. My head was spinning. You're too thin. You're weak. You're too thin. You're good for the furnace. The race seemed interminable. I thought I had been running for years. You're too thin. You're too weak. At last, I had arrived exhausted. When I regained my breath, I questioned Yossi and Tibby. Was I written down? No said Yossi. He added, smiling, In any case, he couldn't have written you down. You were running too fast. I began to laugh. I was glad. I would have liked to kiss him. At that moment, what did the others matter? I hadn't been written down. Those whose numbers had been noted stood apart, abandoned by the whole world. Some were weeping in silence. The SS officers went away. The head of the block appeared, his face reflecting the general weariness. Everything went off all right. Don't worry, nothing is going to happen to anyone, to anyone. Again, he tried to smile. A poor, emaciated, dried-up Jew questioned him avidly in a trembling voice. But, but, Block El Teste, they did write me down. The head of the block let his anger break out. What? Did someone refuse to believe him? What's the matter now? Am I telling lies then? I tell you once and for all, nothing's going to happen to you, to anyone. You're wallowing in your own despair, you fool. The bell rang, a signal that the selection had been completed throughout the camp. With all my might, I began to run to block 36. I met my father on the way. He came up to me. Well, so you passed? Yes, and you? Me too. How we breathed again now. My father had brought me a present, half a ration of bread obtained in exchange for a piece of rubber found at the warehouse which would do to sole a shoe. The bell. Already we must separate, go to bed. Everything was regulated by the bell. It gave me orders, and I automatically obeyed them. I hated it. Whenever I dreamed of a better world, I could only imagine a universe with no bells.
Several days had elapsed. We no longer thought about the selection. We went to work as usual, loading heavy stones into railway wagons. Rations had become more meager. This was the only change. We had risen before dawn as on every day. We had received the black coffee, the ration of bread. We were about to set out for the yard as usual. The head of the block arrived, running. Silence for a moment. I have a list of numbers here. I'm going to read them to you. Those whose numbers I call won't be going to work this morning. They'll stay behind in the camp. And in a soft voice, he read out about ten numbers. We had understood. These were the numbers chosen at the selection. Dr. Mengele had not forgotten. The head of the block went toward his room. Ten prisoners surrounded him, hanging on to his clothes. Save us! You promised! We want to go to the yard. We're strong enough to work. We're good workers. We can... We will... He tried to calm them, to reassure them about their fate, to explain to them that the fact that they were staying behind in the camp did not mean much, had no tragic significance. After all, I stay here myself every day, he added. It was a somewhat feeble argument. He realized it, and without another word went and shut himself up in his room. The bell had just rung. Form up! It scarcely mattered now that the work was hard. The essential thing was to be as far away as possible from the block, from the crucible of death, from the center of hell. I saw my father running toward me. I became frightened all of a sudden. What's the matter? Out of breath, he could hardly open his mouth. <sighs> me too. Me too. They told me to stay behind in the camp. They had written down his number without his being aware of it. What will happen? I asked in anguish. But it was he who tried to reassure me. It isn't certain yet. There's still a chance of escape. They're going to do another selection today. A decisive selection. I was silent. He felt that his time was short. He spoke quickly. He would have liked to say so many things. His speech grew confused. His voice choked. He knew that I would have to go in a few moments. He would have to stay behind alone, so very alone. Look, take this knife, he said to me. I don't need it any longer. It, it might be useful to you. And take this spoon as well. Don't sell them. Quickly, go on, take what I'm giving you. The inheritance. Don't talk like that, father. I felt that I would break into sobs. I don't want you to say that. Keep the spoon and knife. You need them as much as I do. We shall see each other again this evening after work. He looked at me with his tired eyes, veiled with despair. He went on. I'm asking this of you. Take them. Do as I ask, my son. We have no time. Do as your father asks. Our capo yelled that we should start. The unit set out toward the camp gate. Left, right, I bit my lips. My father had stayed by the block, leaning against the wall. Then he began to run to catch up with us. Perhaps he had forgotten something he wanted to say to me. But we were marching too quickly. Left, right. We were already at the gate. They counted us to the din of military music. We were outside. The whole day I wandered about as if sleepwalking. 
Now and then, Tibby and Yossi would throw me a brotherly word. The capo, too, tried to reassure me. He had given me easier work today. I felt sick at heart. How well they were treating me, like an orphan, I thought. Even now, my father is still helping me. I did not know myself what I wanted, for the day to pass quickly or not. I was afraid of finding myself alone that night. How good it would be to die here. At last, we began the return journey. How I longed for orders to run. The military march, the gate, the camp. I ran to Block 36. Were there still miracles on this earth? He was alive. He had escaped the second selection. He had been able to prove that he was still useful. I gave him back his knife and spoon. Akiba Druma left us a victim of the selection. Lately he had wandered among us, his eyes glazed, telling everyone of his weakness. I can't go on. It's all over. It was impossible to raise his morale. He didn't listen to what we told him. He could only repeat that all was over for him, that he could no longer keep up the struggle, that he had no strength left, nor faith. Suddenly his eyes would become blank, nothing but two open wounds, two pits of terror. He was not the only one to lose his faith during those selection days. I knew a rabbi from a little town in Poland, a bent old man whose lips were always trembling. He used to pray all the time in the block, in the yard, in the ranks. He would recite whole pages of the Talmud from memory, argue with himself, ask himself questions, and answer himself. And one day he said to me, it's the end. God is no longer with us. And as though he had repented of having spoken such words, so clipped, so cold, he added in his faint voice, I know. One has no right to say things like that. I know. Man is too small, too humble and inconsiderable to seek to understand the mysterious ways of God. But what can I do? I'm not a sage, one of the elect, nor a saint. I'm just an ordinary creature of flesh and blood. I've got eyes, too, and I can see what they're doing here. Where is the divine mercy? Where is God? How can I believe? How could anyone believe in this merciful God? Poor Akiba Drumer, if he could have gone on believing in God... If he could have seen a proof of God in this Calvary, he would not have been taken by the selection. But as soon as he felt the first cracks forming in his faith, he had lost his reason for struggling and had begun to die. When the selection came, he was condemned in advance, offering his own neck to the executioner. All he asked of us was, In three days I shall no longer be here. Say the Kaddish for me. We promised him. In three days' time, when we saw the smoke rising from the chimney, we would think of him. Ten of us would gather together and hold a special service. All his friends would say Kaddish. And then he went off toward the hospital, his step steadier, not looking back. An ambulance was waiting to take him to Birkenau. These were terrible days. We received more blows than food. We were crushed with work. 
and three days after he had gone, we forgot to say the Kaddish. Winter had come. The days were short and the nights had become almost unbearable. In the first hours of dawn, the icy wind cut us like a whip. We were given winter clothes, slightly thicker striped shirts. The veterans found in this a new source of derision. <laughs> now you'll really be getting a taste of the camp. We left for work as usual, our bodies frozen. The stones were so cold that it seemed as though our hands would be glued to them if we touched them. But you get used to anything. On Christmas and New Year's Day, there was no work. We were allowed a slightly thicker soup. Toward the middle of January, my right foot began to swell because of the cold. I was unable to put it on the ground. I went to have it examined. The doctor, a great Jewish doctor, a prisoner like ourselves, was quite definite. I must have an operation. If we waited, the toes and perhaps the whole leg would have to be amputated. This was the last straw. But I had no choice. The doctor had decided on an operation, and there was no discussing it. I was even glad that it was he who had made the decision. They put me into a bed with white sheets. I had forgotten that people slept in sheets. The hospital was not bad at all. We were given good bread and thicker soup. No more bell, no more roll call, no more work. Now and then I was able to send a bit of bread to my father. Near me lay a Hungarian Jew who had been struck down with dysentery, skin and bone with dead eyes. I could only hear his voice. It was the sole indication that he was alive. Where did he get the strength to talk? You mustn't rejoice too soon, my boy. There's selection here, too. More often than outside. Germany doesn't need sick Jews. Germany doesn't need me. When the next transport comes, you'll have a new neighbor. So listen to me and take my advice. Get out of the hospital before the next selection. These words, which came from under the ground from a faceless shape, filled me with terror. It was indeed true that the hospital was very small and that if new invalids arrived in the next few days, room would have to be found for them. But perhaps my faceless neighbor fearing that he would be among the first victims, simply wanted to drive me away, to free my bed in order to give himself a chance to survive. Perhaps he just wanted to frighten me. Yet, what if he were telling the truth? I decided to await events. The doctor came to tell me that the operation would be the next day. Don't be afraid, he added. Everything will be all right. At 10 o'clock in the morning, they took me into the operating room. My doctor was there. I took comfort from this. I felt that nothing serious could happen while he was there. There was balm in every word he spoke, and every glance he gave me held a message of hope. It will hurt you a bit, he said, but that will pass. Grit your teeth. The operation lasted an hour. They had not put me to sleep. I kept my eyes fixed upon my doctor. Then I felt myself go under. When I came round, opening my eyes, I could see nothing at first but a great whiteness, my sheets, 
Then I noticed the face of my doctor bending over me. Everything went off well. You're brave, my boy. Now you're going to stay here for two weeks, rest comfortably, and it will be over. You'll eat well and relax your body and your nerves. I could only follow the movements of his lips. I could scarcely understand what he was saying, but the murmur of his voice did me good. Suddenly a cold sweat broke out on my forehead. I could not feel my leg. Had they amputated it? Doctor, I stammered. Doctor! What's the matter, son? I lacked the courage to ask him the question. Doctor, I'm thirsty. He had water brought to me. He was smiling. He was getting ready to go and visit the other patients. Doctor, what? Shall I still be able to use my leg? He was no longer smiling. I was very frightened. He said, Do you trust me, my boy? I trust you absolutely, doctor. Well then, listen to me. You'll be completely recovered in a fortnight. You'll be able to walk like anyone else. The sole of your foot was all full of pus. We just had to open the swelling. You haven't had your leg amputated. You'll see. In a fortnight's time, you'll be walking about like everyone else. I had only a fortnight to wait. Two days after my operation, there was a rumor going round the camp that the front had suddenly drawn nearer. The Red Army, they said, was advancing on Buna. It was only a matter of hours now. We were already accustomed to rumors of this kind. It was not the first time a false prophet had foretold to us peace on earth, negotiations with the Red Cross for our release, or other false rumors. And often we believed them. It was an injection of morphine. But this time, these prophecies seemed more solid. During these last few nights, we had heard the guns in the distance. My neighbor, the faceless one, said, Don't let yourself be fooled with illusions. Hitler has made it very clear that he will annihilate all the Jews before the clock strikes twelve, before they can hear the last stroke. I burst out. What does it matter to you? Do we have to regard Hitler as a prophet? His glazed, faded eyes looked at me. At last, he said in a weary voice, I've got more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. He's the only one who's kept his promises, all his promises, to the Jewish people. At four o'clock in the afternoon on the same day, as usual, the bell summoned all the heads of the blocks to go and report. They came back shattered. They could only just open their lips enough to say the word evacuation. The camp was to be emptied and we were to be sent farther back. Where to? To somewhere right in the depths of Germany. To other camps. There was no shortage of them. When? Tomorrow evening. Perhaps the Russians will arrive first. Perhaps. We knew perfectly well that they would not. The camp had become a hive. People ran about shouting at one another. In all the blocks, preparations for the journey were going on. I had forgotten about my bad foot. A doctor came into the room and announced, Tomorrow, immediately after nightfall, the camp will set out, block after block. Patients will stay in the infirmary. They will not be evacuated. This news made us think. Were the SS going to leave hundreds of prisoners to strut about in the hospital blocks, waiting for their liberators? 
Are they going to let the Jews hear the twelfth stroke sound? Obviously not. All the invalids will be summarily killed, said the faceless one, and sent to the crematory in a final batch. The camp is certain to be mined, said another. The moment the evacuation's over, it'll blow up. As for me, I was not thinking about death, but I did not want to be separated from my father. We had already suffered so much, borne so much together. This was not the time to be separated. I ran outside to look for him. The snow was thick and the windows of the blocks were veiled with frost. One shoe in my hand because it would not go onto my right foot. I ran on, feeling neither pain nor cold. What shall we do? My father did not answer. What shall we do, father? He was lost in thought. The choice was in our hands. For once we could decide our fate for ourselves. We could both stay in the hospital where I could, thanks to my doctor, get him entered as a patient or a nurse, or else we could follow the others. Well, what shall we do, father? He was silent. Let's be evacuated with the others, I said to him. He did not answer. He looked at my foot. Do you think you can walk? Yes, I think so. Let's hope that we shan't regret it, Eliezer. I learned after the war the fate of those who had stayed behind in the hospital. They were quite simply liberated by the Russians two days after the evacuation. I did not go back to the hospital again. I returned to my block. My wound was open and bleeding. The snow had grown red where I had trodden. The head of the block gave out double rations of bread and margarine for the journey. We could take as many shirts and other clothes as we liked from the store. It was cold. We got into bed. The last night in Buna. Yet another last night. The last night at home. The last night in the ghetto. The last night in the train. And now, the last night in Buna. How much longer were our lives to be dragged out from one last night to another? I did not sleep at all. Through the frosted panes, bursts of red light could be seen. Cannon shots split the nighttime silence. How close the Russians were. Between them and us, one night, our last night. There was whispering from one bed to another. With luck, the Russians would be here before the evacuation. Hope revived again. Someone shouted, Try and sleep. Gather your strength for the journey. This reminded me of my mother's last words of advice in the ghetto. But I could not sleep. My foot felt as if it were burning. In the morning, the face of the camp had changed. Prisoners appeared in strange outfits. It was like a masquerade. Everyone had put on several garments, one on top of the other, in order to keep out the cold. Poor mountebanks, wider than they were tall, more dead than alive. Poor clowns their ghost-like faces emerging from piles of prison clothes, buffoons. I tried to find a shoe that was too large. In vain, I tore up a blanket and wrapped my wounded foot in it. Then I went wandering through the camp looking for a little more bread and a few potatoes. 
Someone said we were being taken to Czechoslovakia. No, to Grossrosen. No, to Gleivitz. No, to... Two o'clock in the afternoon. The snow was still coming down thickly. The time was passing quickly now. Dusk had fallen. The day was disappearing in a monochrome of gray. The head of the block suddenly remembered that he had forgotten to clean out the block. He ordered four prisoners to wash the wooden floor. An hour before leaving the camp? Why? For whom? For the liberating army, he cried, so that they'll realize there were men living here and not pigs. Were we men then? The block was cleaned from top to bottom, washed in every corner. At six o'clock the bell rang, the death knell, the burial. The procession was about to begin its march. Form up! Quickly! In a few moments we were all in rows, by blocks. Night had fallen. Everything was in order according to the prearranged plan. The searchlights came on. Hundreds of armed SS men rose up out of the darkness, accompanied by sheepdogs. The snow never ceased. The gates of the camp opened. It seemed that an even darker night was waiting for us on the other side. The first blocks began to march. We waited. We had to wait for the departure of the 56 blocks who came before us. It was very cold. In my pocket I had two pieces of bread. With how much pleasure could I have eaten them? But I was not allowed to. Not yet. Our turn was coming. Block 53. Block 55. Block 57. Forward march. It snowed relentlessly.